everybody. Welcome to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. Mike DiFilippo. I'm Caroline Schwester. And today we're going to have a requiem for EMS week. Oh, thank God. We all start chanting in the old Latin. <laughs> turn into the, the Monty Python monks. Uh, I've been practicing my Gr- Gregorian stuff. The, gra- <laughs> the overrun Gregorian chant. The, the new thing is Mongolian throat singing. <laughs> Yo, that whistling is legit. All I'm saying, listen, the Hue is a, they're, they're a great metal band. Everybody listen to them. We wanted to have a show for EMS week as this is something that is typically celebrated by everybody, or at least there's plenty of banners and free breakfasts that say so. But the, I don't know, I think the idea of EMS week is perhaps uh, better than the execution. So EMS week, we know that it's, uh, it's created that we're trying to recognize EMS workers, but it's kind of been bastardized and uh, sort of turned into a joke among the community. So Danny, what do we think about EMS week? What do we think? I can tell you what I think. <laughs> All right. So, um, so here, here's, so here's the, the general, the general talk, right? We know that at some, generally speaking, when we have EMS week, it tends to apply to EMS workers that happen to work day shift from like nine to five. So if you're an EMS worker and you go into a hospital and you work day shift, there's plenty of fun things for you. So there's already kind of uh, sort of an ostracization of night shift workers. Um, and there's a lot of other criticisms to go there, but listen, uh, as a, as a former full-time night shift worker, I loved stale donuts during EMS week. They were just, you get the, the last yeah, pieces of the cold cake, ass the, uh, Dunkin' coffee just sitting there <laughs> for 14 hours. The, the warm half pint water bottles sitting in a bowl of melted ice. <laughs> hydrate guys. It's in hydrate guys. It's hot out there. You matter. Nothing says you matter to us more than stale Turkey sandwiches and warm <laughs> Floating, floating in the pink basin in the EMS room. Here they and they all have mayonnaise on them. They've just been sitting there for two days. Good luck with that. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna start because Ed and I were talking earlier, and and I kind of had the hottest take on this whole thing. And you know, feel free to come at me in the comments or come at me on social media. I hate EMS Week. I think we have literally lost the meaning of what this should be. I think it is an empty useless suit inspired thing to try to make people feel better when you have systemic problems in a profession that are so vast and so big that it's almost insurmountable um, are, and we'll get into some of this stuff. Cause I actually, I, I actually started looking at studies and looking at some of this, the literature on this, on our profession. And you know, this is this is a smiley face band-aid on a gaping head wound. Um, we have so many problems in this profession, whether it's staffing, whether it's deployment models, whether it's work conditions, um, incidents of substance abuse, uh, post-traumatic stress, um, toxic work environments. I mean, we can sit there, you can go on Reddit, you can go on any of the social media things and, and see all this stuff. And yet here's a week, it's only five days. It's not even a full week because it's Monday to Friday where you're going to get maybe a free sandwich, maybe a water bottle or some other tchotchke. And here you go. And then the other 51 weeks of the year, we're going to just keep kicking in the teeth. Um, it we do not it does nothing to raise public awareness it's it's literally a place for people to get free shears free pens um a free lunch and go back to the same grind back to the house of pain it's every ems conference except it's spread out over a week and there's no education 
I mean, I, I do think EMS week though is important. I, I, I think having it is better than not having it, but where it is now in its current state is not where it should be. Um, well, and that's kind of where we want the discussion to go, right? Yeah. So the, the first thing is, is there a need for recognition for EMS nationwide? Of course there is, right? Like, of, of course, that's going to be our right. opinion no, on an EMS talk show. No one's disputing that. But we, you know, we don't, it's not being used because EMS is so fragmented as a profession because right. we have so many different entities and stakeholders who have their own thing into it. We don't have a uniform voice as to what this should be. No, and it, it, it turns into, I think, a it's a good idea that's kind of been bastardized that it's it's unfortunate because there's a lot of a lot of good things that can come from it. One of the things that we don't do for EMS in general is things like, you know, lobbying, like trying to get laws changed to support EMS workers, which is something that could be done during EMS week, but is not. Um, this is a it's a good idea to recognize EMS workers, but I think that the the recognition has become sort of arbitrary. Right. It's turned into where, you know, there'll be a banner put out of the hospital or in front of the station or whatever that will say, like, you know, we love our first frontline workers, especially now during COVID. Um, you know, you'll see things like thank you, frontline workers and whatever. Heroes work here. And heroes work here. Exactly. So you'll see you'll see these banners. Um, you know, I, ironically, like you'll see a bunch of posts with things like happy EMS week and it's juxtaposed with like a broken monitor or refrigerator underneath the banner. <laughs> um you know, so it, it, it's something that I think is important, but I, I think as an industry, we've allowed it to become self-parody. So it becomes this self-consuming cycle where we don't really build it out in something that could actually be effective. Um, you know, comparatively nurses, although I'm not a nurse, um, but nurses where I'm working made a parody out of their week. Um, just because I, I think, you know, every profession kind of has the similarity of, you know, you want better pay, you want better benefits specifically for nursing. You want better patient to nurse ratios um, that are kind of like often ignored by certain institutions uh, where people may be working. Other places do it great. Not saying every place is terrible. Well, uh, well, conversely, Mike, there's the, you know, the whole idea of an appreciation week is usually professions that don't get appreciated. That's you know, true. You have teacher appreciation week, you have nurse appreciation week, you have EMS week, I don't see anybody talking about financial analyst week or, you know. Well, that's because you're just close-minded. <laughs> financial analyst, analyst week is coming up next week. I guarantee you at, at some brokerage house, there's a financial analyst week. <laughs> yeah, it's called, yeah, it's called the quarterly bonus, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> financial analyst week is uh, from January 1st to December 31st every year, <laughs> all the time. So and all the bonuses go toward my house in yeah, my third house in Boca. Yeah, exactly. Boca. So one of the things I want to talk about is there is some studies that have been done. Um, and I think this is kind of why we don't ever get any traction. Um, if I told you that a profession had a 20% turnover rate per year, what would you say about that? Why, Danny, I would say that sounds high. I would say it sounds high depending on the profession. I think like McDonald's workers or other entry-level uh, workers where a lot of young people work, I would say maybe that's an, uh, an acceptable level for yeah. people that are kind of doing it as entry-level. No, Mike's, Mike's right. 20% at some place like Walmart is different than 20% at like Steve's Lumberyard. 
20% is different for a job as opposed to a profession. And I think that's what we're talking about here. When we talk about this being a quote unquote profession, I, I, uh, there's a, there's a study by the American ambulance association. We're going to put it in the show notes that, you know, for EMTs and paramedics, it's around 20% uh, to have the turnover from year to year. That's basically saying every four to five years, your entire clinical component of your job of your place turns over 100%. That's staggering to me. There is, that means you don't develop a culture. That means you don't develop long-term uh, goals. You really don't think about anything beyond next year because let's be honest, they aren't going to be there. Well, the EMS right. version and, and, of the ship of Theseus. <laughs> <laughs> Every. Just keep rebuilding it. Is it the same organization if if everybody's it's, favorite if it, place if it's a yeah. hundred different people with the same patch <laughs> no but that's important and obviously you're going to have organizations that are going to have outliers so you're going to hear people say like well people have been at this project for 25 years so there's always exceptions to that rule but, but those look but, look but into those numbers and those numbers i'm quoting are the are the are the weighted and unweighted averages of this study no no i i understand so that what i'm saying is that. if, if you're listening more and yeah there's people that have less but Damn, man, that's a lot. Right, but if what I'm saying is that if there's people listening to this show, they're going to identify the outliers. And generally, you'll you'll always have an organization be like, well, there's a 20% turnover. And they're like, oh, well, look at Dave, who's been here since 1979. So it's I'm pointing out, like, that's not it's not necessarily a good metric. Yeah, right? yeah, you want to right. see, and, and think about your own shops, right? When you think about where you're working, consider how many staff members you have, and then consider how many people leave or are considering leaving for better pay elsewhere, which is to say usually anywhere, or a, you know, a less stressful job, or they're just leaving the industry in general. Like when you're well, the next time, the next time you're all at shift, and I'm not just talking to us, I'm just saying in general, when you're at your shift change, like actually listen to the conversation and think about how many people have discussed leaving or going elsewhere. Yeah, I think especially as someone that is at least temporarily left EMS to, you know, go to medical school and now work as a doctor, like I, I can recall, I think almost universally, everybody's working on some sort of side hustle, whether it's, you know, education as a means as a backup because of the extraordinary injury rate um, with lack of good, you know, backup jobs with just your medic or EMT to using it as a stepping stone for police jobs, fire, nursing, uh, medical school, whatever have you. Um, I, I, I think EMS is in a very precarious situation in the sense that like how many people actually wake up every day and say, EMS is my career. This is what I want to do day in, day out. And I, all, all these studies that come out that say, you know, this is the attrition rate nationally. I'm always curious, you know, if you exclude from those studies, people that are doing EMS as a stepping stone, either to another career um, or for just some entry level experience for something else, say PA school or medical school or something. And you just include people that are doing EMS as a career. Um, I wonder what the percentage turnover rate would be because you don't see that with, you know, police and fire for the most part, because a majority of those individuals go into the police academy or the fire academy, knowing that they want to be a police officer or a fire firefighter. So I, I think if we, you know, if we would develop a study where we would look with the national survey saying, you know, the exclusion criteria being if you're looking to do anything other than EMS, meaning we would only include people who say EMS is my career. I am curious to see what the, the attrition rate would be. My feeling is it would still be high just because I think anecdotally 
a lot of EMS shops just treat their employees terribly and for very low pay compared to other public service jobs. Um, but I don't think for people that are just doing it for their career that it's as high as, you know, 25%. Yeah, there, there's a, and, and Ed, there's, there is a guy named Dave at every one of our shops. There was also a Dave at the Battle of the Somme. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that Dave is the guy we look at and say, wow, lucky you, you made it through the minefield 500 times. Right. Like, I just think that that is an enormous obstacle for us to build this profession when we can't keep people. And we have. Well, so, and that's, but that's here. kind of the point yeah. of what we're discussing, right? Is that is it like a lot of times we use this week to recognize EMS. And I think that it's important to take the time to use the week to be like, Oh, look, look how poorly EMS is actually represented. Yeah, I think so. And I, and I think that part of this is, you know, we don't address the root causes in this job of why we're burning people out so fast. Um, I, it was funny. I, I got in a social media conversation with, um, with people, um, they um, someone posted about the um, the writings of a guy named Jack Stout. Um, Jack Stout was an EMS guy. He was somebody that's been held up as a visionary uh, in the world. He's the guy who came up with system status management. Now, I'm going to argue that there's a lot of people that think he's a brilliant man, and I don't dispute that he isn't. But I'm also going to argue that I think things like system status management, dynamic status management, where, you know, we're posting people on street corners for 12 hour shifts in a truck, idling on the side of the road, moving them at 310 in the morning from one post to the other, because the computer told you that there's a higher likelihood of a call in that area. When even for the majority of calls, can we agree that time is not a factor in 90% of EMS calls? Right. Well, but this is something that speaks to the bigger picture that we've talked about before, where it's it's the commodification of medicine. Right. Well, I think right. even the corporatization you have now, you know, I mean, historically, most public services are evaluated by metrics, meaning, you know, police and fire are evaluated historically by their response times, the, you know, for police crime deterrence, for fire departments, you know, t- you know, fire deterrence. I don't know what that means. I'm just comparison. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, for EMS, though, you know, I think you're right largely that, you know, response time really does not equate to better outcomes in a majority of patients, nor does travel time to the hospital, as a lot of studies have shown, um, whether or not you're using lights and sirens. But I, I think that becomes a punitive issue to a lot of individual EMS providers, whereas I don't think that's the case for a lot of police and fire departments. You know, if your shoot time is increased on average with your fire department or your, your police department, I, I can't think of any cop. Now, this is all anecdotal, but I know, you know, lots of police officers and lots of firefighters. Um, but I've never heard them complain that their management is breathing down their necks about their response times. Alternatively, I've heard from several medic friends at several different projects, either corporate owned or hospital owned or private equity owned. Um, that, you know, they're always being breathed down their neck about response times and the added part of patient satisfaction. Like how nice were they during the job? Doesn't matter if you have a complete shithead taking care of you, but how nice were they during the transport? Right. And the ones that have negative outcomes or feel that the provider was rude are the ones that complain. So they're the ones that you hear from. Right. So I think, you know, there's so much extra that goes on in EMS that adds to 
burnout and subsequently kind of like starts this whole big negative cycle that turns appreciation weeks like this, like EMS week into a kind of a joke because the same people that are berating you for essentially BS metrics that don't actually equate to physical differences in your day-to-day job, nor in patient care are now turning around and saying, oh, you are, are, are all amazing. You deserve amazing things. But, you know, we're not going to change stuff that actually causes... You're all doing great. Here's a $5 gift card and a QA on your chart. <laughs> here's, a wa- <laughs> here's a water bottle and a write-up because you your shoe was untied. <laughs> you, you wore the wrong color blue. So we're going to send you home. No, actually, I, I, I want to ask you a question. What, what's the silliest EMS week gift you've gotten since we're, we're kind of on that train? Because I, I, I got a great one. Mine was an eraser. An eraser? Now, yeah. I, I literally, I remember going to this hospital and they had, uh, they actually have a very, very nice EMS room. And I was like very excited to go there on a transport because I was like, oh, the EMS week stuff's probably banging. Walk in and it's a bunch of erasers. And I'm like, who the, who the hell uses a pencil anymore? <laughs> like, like seriously, I'm like, who uses a, one uses a pencil anymore? Two, was, it, was it like going to the Scholastic Book Fair when you were was, a kid? It was those, it was those like two inch by one inch erasers and it just said happy EMS week on it. And I was like, really? Like who, who chose this? Who wait, wait, did eraser? it have like a brand identifier or was it just like a generic? No, just like, generic happy EMS. Just happy EMS week. In, in <laughs> Times New Roman italicized font with well, like two exclamation points. It's it written like happy. a ransom note. <laughs> you don't know who it's from. <laughs> just happy EMS week from someone you hope is on your side. <laughs> Uh, what'd you get, Ed? I once my first uh, EMS week as an EMT, and I it was this was before I really like had an idea of what it was all about. Um, I received a from the company that I was working for. Uh, it was a private. It was a private a combination of, of private and hospital. Owned, I guess uh, we received notepads from a an ambulance corps that we had just absorbed. So the company. <laughs> <laughs> What they managed to do was they, when they took over the company, they took all their stationery, and then as a cost-saving measure, they gave out the stationery to uh, the EMTs and paramedics. Give it to the medics as, as the EMS week gift. Yep. I I got. Uh, I remember one year I got a leather badge holder and an American flag metal bar pin. Plot twist: You didn't wear badges or pins. Well, no, I did wear badges. And then we were informed via memo that in addition to this, um, there is a new change to the uniform code. You will be wearing these on your uniform. <laughs> Happy oh. EMS week. Wear this all EMS. the time. <laughs> um, Caroline, you this is your first EMS week. And you're not scheduled until the weekend, so you get nothing. Because <laughs> we all know. <laughs> weekend warriors excluded from EMS week gifts. EMS Monday through Friday week. <laughs> the saddest EMS week moment I think I've had short of, of the notepad was it's, it's a series of moments that, that went on for the decade or so I worked night shift. There was always this, like this sad interlude at like one in the morning and you would, you would walk into the hospital and there was just empty, sad plastic trays with like a little bit of lettuce lining them. <laughs> like No one had come in to clean them up yet. And there was just like, it was like an empty water cooler that hasn't been addressed. It's like, it looked like, 
it, it, the, it was it was the aftermath. It looked like or the, or the leftover chicken salad sub that nobody really wanted. And the, right, exactly. <laughs> wilted and turning a little brown. Alternatively, yeah. though, I will say the best EMS week consistently that I've ever experienced from year to year was at the hospital that housed the EMS fellows. Um, and they always, so like I said, I've almost exclusively worked night shift my entire career in EMS and they always had fresh food and they would page out to all the units at like 2 AM and we're like, Oh, we have di- you know, dinner ready for you guys. And you would go in and it wasn't just like one or two trays. It was like 10 trays for a lot of EMS providers and everyone was able to get multiple plates and like other, other things too, that you would like, you know, that felt like it meant a lot, meaning like, you know, you got water bottles that you could actually refill in their EMS room that had like a water cooler that was refilled regularly with not empty water that was in there or, you know, just didn't work. So I mean, not from the tap that they just dumped. It yeah. <laughs> with, you know, filled with lead. Um, You've got to, got to go to the trauma, the uh, trauma desk scrub sink and fill it back up. Oh my God. <laughs> just taking some sterile waters. It's got to refill. Yeah, this, this is fine. It'll be fine. So I, you know, I think, but I feel like that also speaks to the fact that I think, you know, part of the solution to this is getting uh, people that can advocate for you from the hospital standpoint, or alternatively, if if you're working for a corporate or private equity place, um, you know, from the corporate or private equity side, you know, for hospitals, I think, you know, doctors and, and nurses who have worked as paramedics or EMTs to advocate that stuff actually gets done that's meaningful. Um, and can also advocate, you know, we talk so much about like legislative advocacy, which I think is nice for a national thing. But as we were saying, you know, a lot of EMS organizations are so fragmented. But if you get someone who is a good institutional advocate uh, for your EMS department, that could also be very like meaningful. So I think if you have people like me or other doctors that worked as medics and EMTs to advocate for the medics and EMTs, I think that's a huge thing. I may be a little biased in saying that, but I feel like that's really at least to start some change and make EMS weeks meaningful kind of, you know, cause there's, there's always meetings that, that occur in the hospitals that you can sit in on, for example, operational meetings, uh, other, you know, business meetings, those sorts of things that are kind of open uh, to hospital employees. And you can have time to actually advocate for certain things that you feel like are not being done appropriately. And I, I always try to find time to advocate for the EMTs and medics in my shop. I don't think I've made any appreciable change but at least there's an annoying voice. But uh, somebody is saying teams. something. Yeah. But that's that's an important thing to address, right? Like we we can joke about all this kind of stuff, like all the you know kind of pedantic gifts that we all get that seem kind of arbitrary, which is which is whatever. Because there's another faction of EMS workers who demand something for EMS. We can get upset when they don't get it. Give me my tchotchkes, and it better be good. I demand a seventh lunchbox with my employer's <laughs> Dude, brand. I remember I was at Wawa on my way into shift grabbing coffee and this guy was in there in full uniform and he didn't get a free coffee. And he oh, was like, boy. to the lady behind the counter, he was like, I save lives for a living. I am an EMT. Oh. Coffee should be free. And I was just like, I wasn't even in uniform, but I was just like, Oh my God, dude, you're making us all look like a bunch of schmucks. Like just well, so that, that speaks to the bigger cultural conversation, right? So you have, we've, we've decided that, you know, we save lives and we're heroes, which we've talked about toxic heroism a bunch of times on the show. But if we're looking at this and we know that EMS week generally makes EMS workers maybe feel underappreciated. And if they're working at a shop where that's not the case, that's extraordinary, but they're certainly the exception and not the rule. So, how do you go about changing the culture at your organization? Listen, I kind of have an idea, and I think I think the fire service has kind of shown us the way on this. 
Fire Prevention Week is not necessarily Firefighter Appreciation Week. What it really is, is it's a massive public outreach campaign where they do open houses, they do uh, stop, drop, and roll stuff for kids. They show you how to stop fires in their ha- in your house. Operating fire extinguishers, all sort all, all sorts of stuff. I I like if if there's a way to save EMS week. I I think it's just the you know kind of the get away from the the, the stupid tchotchkes and the the food that we know is generally basically unhealthy anyway, which promotes bad. We can go off on the whole how that promotes you know bad habits among EMS clinicians. Imagine an EMS week where the EMS gifts are just fruits, vegetables, and I, water. I would be so <laughs> aggravated. I, I think that's like the equivalent of getting an apple on Halloween instead of like Reese's <laughs> or some other. I, here, I gave you a bag of pennies. I would be oh, triggered so hard. I think I would crush the apple in my I, hand. No, listen. No, hear me out. Like we, we should be taking ownership of EMS week away as clinicians from the suits. We should be doing like, this should be where we talk about what we do, how important our role is in the, in the, the food chain. And we should be doing public access CPR. We should be doing public access defibrillation training. Should be in the malls teaching compression only CPR sharing what we do, talking about the thing, having open houses, having people take a look at an ambulance and see the things that we do and why it's so important. Because the fire service has done this, okay? And by and large, there's no one that's going to tell you that they don't need a firehouse or a fire truck in their neighborhood, okay? But if you talk about an ambulance or $50 more on your property tax to make sure that your ambulances are properly staffed, people roll their eyes and they complain because it's not something they use. If we frame it as something, look, it's here if you need it, and this is what we do for you. I think we could probably start turning around some perception and maybe just maybe we could start increasing our, you know, our, our footprint with the public where they're like, yeah, paramedics are important. EMTs are important. We need them in our town. Why don't we have enough? No, exactly. I think that, that talking about what the fire service does, you know, people, I think one of the things that the fire service has over EMS is that fire trucks are cool. Right. So that's. And pensions. No, listen, I'm, talk, I'm talking about as, as far as public perception is concerned, right? The fire service obviously has employees. They have pensions. They usually have a career ladder, which EMS tends to not have. There's a million things that the fire service actually has. But as far as the public you know, understanding is concerned, one advantage that I think the fire service has is that you you never see a fire truck going to, you know, or at least in the public's perception, going to the general medical alarm that we go to all the time. Right. Meanwhile, you see, like seeing a fire truck is a rarity. Seeing an ambulance, I think, is something that's kind of common. So people don't think about it all that often. But that's why well, they, for, that, but that's go. why when you have a week like this, that's why you have to ha- have your organization go out and be like, listen, this is what we do. And I, I think that they like the, the touch a truck thing for kids. That's an awesome idea. You can show them in an ambulance. Like, don't be afraid of this. And that works. But you can also show the community like this is how we serve your community. And there has to be a better way than, you know, putting out a press release saying we answered 6000 calls this year. Yep, absolutely. You know. Um, and I, I think it has to be more, you have to get your public information officer out there. You know, we've talked about that previously on the show with Margaret Keevney. You want to get someone who comes out and says like, this is the value add. 
Um, there are people that like, you know, they'll have a, they have a lunch or a breakfast every year and they bring their cardiac arrest survivors and they, you know, talk about what they did and they publicize this stuff. They share their story. We talked about this on the PIO episode back a few months ago where, you know, telling your story is important. And a lot of times if you just ask these people to share their story, they will. And that's where I think EMS Week needs to go. We've got to get away from this. You know, I don't need another pair of damn scissors. I mean, but if they're really good scissors, though. Do you know they're uh, all shit? No, <laughs> stop. No, I, I think I think you're right. I think that you want to get out and you want to be like, this is what your EMTs do. This is what your paramedics do. I think EMS Week would be a great time to get into high schools. And just be like, hey, listen, you know, it'll be a kind of cool career. And you know what? If every class that I've taught, I've asked everybody in there, why are you there? And I've always told them, like, I don't want, like the running joke I use is I assume that you want to help people because you're not a sociopath. So I'm not interested in hearing I want to help people. So tell me why you're here. And every class, there's a couple people who just want to help their community. And that, that is one of the most admirable things I can hear. I have respect for people who they want to be an EMT. They want to be a medic. They want to be a nurse, PA, doctor, whatever. I, nothing but respect for that. And even people who are like, I'm only here because my fire department pays me whatever, $1.50 extra an hour to be an EMT. I, listen, I respect that too, because I respect the hustle. But... <laughs> Hate <laughs> the game, not the player. Exactly. <laughs> but that's but that's the thing. Like I feel like you can go out, you can get these people who never considered EMS as a, as a career opportunity, and and like this is where for EMS Week, this is where you could take a, a group of people, you could go to an underserved community and like offer opportunities, right? You could go to any public high school in your town and be like, you can do this. This is this will offer career opportunities to you. Right. And at least that way you can help expand the base of new EMTs and medics that are out in the yeah. community. And even with a 20% attrition rate, you know, fine, but work with it. Realize that, you know, you are going to lose people, that people are going to move up. Maybe we don't look at it as a negative when we say, hey, that's a gr that's great. This is a great stepping stone. Learn how to take care of patients, learn how to be a caring individual and, and move on and be ambassadors to EMS in whatever field you go to. Actually, interesting point, Danny. I feel like a lot of the volunteer EMS, EMS organizations use that as their pitch to recruit a lot of like high school slash younger individuals to get their EMT, um, at least where we're from, like our area in the Northeast. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, that, that's, that's, a, that's a pitch. I didn't realize it until you said it, but that's a pitch I've definitely heard um, from their aspect. Um, I, I, don't, I don't actually think that would be a bad thing to kind of conceptualize on the professional side. Uh, not that volunteers aren't professional, but I mean, like, you know, you actually receive a paycheck uh, for your work. Um, no, no, I, I, think I think that's a totally reasonable, reasonable approach to kind of recruit more and okay. to kind of get at that, that, that base of, you know, recognize what EMS does as a profession and where it can lead you to go. Like, I wouldn't be where I am without EMS experience. So, Mike, exactly. And that's kind of the point. Like, I, I had no plans on ever going into EMS. And I, I kind of just fell into it. And it, it, EMS is the reason that I have everything that I have in my life. So, you know, that was not a planned thing. And I think finding those people who maybe never thought about going into EMS is going to be the important thing to keep things moving on. Because in five years, we're going to have an aging population that's going to retire. And we already don't have enough EMTs and medics. Yeah. And guys, look at just look at the overrun gang. I mean, we've got 
a physician who was an EMT and a paramedic. We've got a nurse who was an EMT. We've got a medical student who was a paramedic. We've got, we even have one of those, for goodness sake, we got somebody sitting right in, right in the room with us who is using EMT as a road to med school you know, as yeah. something to gain experience by. This is not a bad thing. This is not an indictment of the profession, but let's use it positively. Right. And, 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 and we need it. We need as a community, we need to stop looking at people using EMS as a stepstone as a wholly negative thing. No, it's uh, not. I, right. If, like that's, I agree with that. if they're going to come back, if they're going to recognize the role, appreciate the role, yeah. and go ahead and, help the role develop. Like, no, and that's exactly what I'm saying. Like I, I want more EMTs and medics, frankly, like Mike, who, you know, and then we can all break out into the, I want to be like Mike song. Um, <laughs> I just, I just want to see Mike turn and be like, and I took that personally, uh, <laughs> but you know, I want people who went into EMS realize like, Oh, this is actually really cool who enjoy it and want to help grow it and then, you know, go off to their medical schools and their nursing schools and then come back to help administer it in a better way than the way, than the way they found it. Listen, look at the military. The majority of people in the military do not stay in for a full career, but that doesn't right. mean that they don't become advocates for the military, for the, for the lifestyle. But also like great point though, like a lot of former military who we all know, we, I feel like we also know a lot of large form military because there's a lot of overlap with public service. Right. We'll say, you know, I went to the military to get job opportunities, which is also a recruiting point for the military. Sure it is. Maybe that's to a fault sometimes where we too. need to go on this. Maybe that's where we need to go. Right. And, one of, and so we have to do that, but we also as a community have to stop you know, discouraging people when they go into EMT or medic school. So I think importantly, you know? though, like if I if I could like pull out one meaningful point from our conversation in this podcast recording so far is to you, the listener, while you're driving to work right now or listening to us at 3 a.m. sitting in the front of your small ambulance and your knees are hurting you. We're talking post, to you specifically, John time. Smith. <laughs> it is, it post, is up for the it fourth is, time. <laughs> it is up to you to advocate for these changes. I, I really think, you know, to, to wake up tomorrow or drunkenly tonight decide that I'm going to call my legislator and demand these changes happen to EMS and my, my state is insane. But I don't think it's insane if you decide tomorrow, never drunkenly tonight, to approach your employer and say, hey, I have some ideas that I think we could implement that would honestly be very easy to implement to change EMS week and to change the culture around here towards certain things, meaning like implementing outreach programs to high schools and colleges, like, you know, community colleges are a goldmine for people who are ambitious and determined to one, you know, get a degree, but also like earn money in a respectable career, which I would argue EMS is in some places, is not in others, certainly, where you make, you know, terrible money, um, but also introduce the idea to a lot of these young, fresh minds that this is a, a stepping stone to certain careers. Like, you know, it's not impossible. Like, I always thought it was impossible for me to become a doctor. But with EMS experience, that is now a possibility. You know, it's not impossible for you to become a police officer or a firefighter or work in public health or, you know, any other public agency, for instance, 
if you have certain experience. And I feel like the threshold to enter EMS as compared to police and fire is much lower. Now, that could be a whole different conversation, but that's the reality. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right. And that's the community college thing I think is great. You know, you could start just with your organization sending out whatever, two units to a community college and teaching people how to do CPR for free, right? You can teach them how to do layman CPR. It takes, you know, it, you can teach them in two minutes, but the people will recognize you in uniform and, you know, they might see your ambulance, whatever else. And, you know, that's, that's a start that you can have, but, you know, big picture, I think we have to work as a community to try and get the greater public to recognize what EMS does. And then we also have to kind of take a look in the mirror internally and see how we can work to make our own systems better. And that's of course, ignoring all the other problems with wage disparity and benefits and all that, and on the job injuries and all that other stuff. Which we know we can't solve right now. But right, this is that's um, not a problem that we can solve. But this now. is this is low. I think this is low hanging fruit. And remember, I came in here thinking, "Hey, look, we need to get rid of EMS Week. We need to throw it out. We need to defenestrate it, throw it out the window." And now we're kind of. I'm kind of like, "Yeah, no, we can change this." But it's got to start next week, gang. It's got to start with you going to your leadership and saying, "Hey, look." I got an idea for next year, but I don't want to do the same old thing. Let's do it this way and do it on a departmental level. Do it on a depart on a county basis. Do it on a council basis. Do it, you know, on a small scale. And if we do enough small scale things, it's going to grow and you're going to see this develop. You know, if you want to do it, this is the way to do it. Now, I will say, like Mike said, don't don't call your boss at three o'clock this morning <laughs> with with drunken <laughs> ideas. If you do, however. Please record it and send it to us. <laughs> yeah. we, will, we will include you on a new podcast episode. I got drunk and listened to the overrun, and I got something I need to say to you. I have some conditions. <laughs> I have some terms. So we do want to know what you guys think. Let us know how your EMS week went and overrun productions at gmail.com. You can also drop us a line on Facebook, search the overrun, and on Instagram uh, and Twitter at overrun EMS. So let us know what you guys think. We're always interested in your opinions. Tell us your silliest EMS week gifts because we're looking for something to top a uh, pencil oh. eraser now. That is uh, that was ambiguously <laughs> written is, is our bellwether now. So for the overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Truster. I'm Mike Filippo. Don't drunkenly call your boss. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline's here too. <laughs> good night, Caroline. Say good night, Caroline. Good night, Caroline. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. She's a rookie, folks. Give her a break. Get home safe.
It turns out that the, the easiest and fastest way to get to there is by walking into dispatch and I'll, I'll give anyone the entire program. We have the, the entire kind of like the entire day that we go through with them and we teach them exactly why they have to get the people on the other end of the call to start CPR. And it's very, very basic. Um, the harder pull is to go out and say, okay, citizens of, of Broward County or, you know, wherever your community is, you know, we would really love you to do this. Now in Seattle, they do this really well. Why? Because it's a, it's a culture thing. It's a community Seattle, thing. Seattle does everything well. Uh, it's, right. Like, but they, I, I will live. I Listen, I am New Jersey, ride or die, but gosh, that, that's <laughs> right. Right. So listen, so the state of Florida could have had an opportunity to recommend or mandate CPR training before you graduate high school. Um, you know, we're, we're still not on that list. Whereas I think you can start at nine or 10 years of age and they do that very well in Seattle. So um, I listen, the bystander piece is important that that takes legislation, it takes schools to get involved. But the easier thing is that a single person can walk in, set a meeting with your dispatchers and your, your telecommunicators and say, this is why doing CPR and getting cancer chest on soon and fast is, is important. And if you, and if, again, that's another great data point. So if you're listening to this today, you can walk into dispatch and say, Hey, the next 10 cardiac arrests, I want to do, I want to get two times. Number one, when did we recognize arrest? And that should happen in 60 seconds. When did we put hands on chest? That should happen within two minutes. And I'll guarantee you that if you haven't, you know, gone into dispatch to talk about this, it's going to be somewhere in the four to five minute range. And so if you can just shorten that time from five minutes down to two minutes, and if you can do it even less than two minutes, which is hard, all of a sudden your survival goes up significantly. So the, that's the lowest hanging fruit there is today, be, you know, besides being a great EMS professional and kicking ass on scene. This is a really, I, this I found very interesting. And, you know, it's nice that if everybody in the world carried a CPR card. But we know that just getting hands on a chest and just doing compressions will make a difference. Um, talk more about this, the dispatcher-aided CPR, the telephone CPR. It's it's not something anybody with, you can literally get anybody and talk them into doing chest compressions. You just have to reassure them. You have to tell them that they need to do this. And you know, talk about the no, no go algorithm and how easy it is to implement at your dispatch center. Yeah. So there are a couple barriers that you're alluding to that have to be overcome when you're on the phone trying to figure out is someone dead? Number one. And B, should I go to the next step and have someone actually push on that person's chest? And the barriers are as follows. The person at, 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 at the communication center is wondering, am I going to hurt this person? You have, to, you have to kind of go in there and make them understand that if, let's say, the next 10 people seem like they're cardiac, in cardiac arrest, but you were wrong and you, were pushing on their, you had someone push on their chest, it's still okay. Nothing. They may have some bruised ribs. They may be upset with you. They'll get over it. Okay. Well, let's also reference people were worried about hurting a patient who's in cardiac arrest. So just take a second. You're like, what are you gonna? What is it you're gonna do to them? Exactly. Correct. <laughs> how how could you possibly make this worse? Correct. Exactly. And you know what? I've spoken to those people, and I say, hey, after you left the hospital, your chest hurt. 
And like, yeah, how long did it hurt for? A month. Great, right? I bet so, the, it hurt the next month you were alive. I bet it Correct, did. correct. <laughs> so for, for kids, the additional barrier is that oftentimes the call's coming in and you don't really hear because the parents are screaming. They oftentimes will say it was a seizure. And um, the, the person on the other end of the call will say, ah, seizure. Okay, that does not require chest compressions. But as soon as you hear unconscious, not breathing normally, that's the first no. Okay. Um, so, you know, are they awake? Can you wake them up? Okay. That's number one. No. Um, are they breathing normally? No. So once you get to those two things, which should take about 10 seconds, then it's go. So here's the problem with that. You have to, you know, you have to get all the information out first, right? Um, who are you? What's your phone number? They repeat it. What's the address? They repeat it. And now you're getting all that information. If you're a secondary PSAP, then you, you, you probably lost a good 30, 30 seconds to 60 seconds prior to that. Um, and so if you really time out what's going on, getting that, okay, we're going to get them flat on their back on a hard service and we're going to start doing chest compressions. If you start to say things like, well, um, excuse me, ma'am, do you know how to do CP? Have you ever done CPR before? All of a sudden, you have the wrong tone. You have to be very directive in how you speak. We're going to get them flat on their back. We're going to start CPR. You're going to follow my instructions. X, Y, Z. One, two, three. And you're going to go down the line. So, so that, that, that's the first, like the no, no go should be done everywhere. Like tomorrow. In, Absolutely. Yeah. Now in kids, in kids, here, here's the big problem is that you often hear someone start CPR nicely when you listen to the audio. And then the parent will typically start to provide some sort of feedback. And the feedback is something like, oh, wait, 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 I see some mucus coming out of their nose now. The, the, the telecommunicator now starts to revert back to old habits and they say, oh, okay, um, are they turning pink now? Um, are they breathing on their own? Um, hey, do you have that blue bulb suction from the hospital they gave you? Let's go and suction it. And I'm, I'm like, no, no, no. So the rule is when you, when you're at go, you don't stop. I don't care if, yeah. I don't care what's happening. They, they, they think they feel a pulse, continue on. We are terrible. Clinicians in the field are terrible. Like, did we lose pulses? Does he have a pulse? I don't yeah. know. But, you know, do we have heart tones? Do we have that? Like, w listen, it, it, it changed. It changes practice when you just say, look, if I can't feel something or I'm not sure we're doing compressions, that's it. And the same thing has to be here. The whole thing that happens with, I think with any cardiac arrest, but especially with pediatric cardiac arrest is as a provider, I, I think, and, and Dr. Antebi, you can correct me on this. I think you have to become square with sometimes bad shit happens and it is, horribly unfortunate that we are in a scenario where there is a child whose heart has stopped and it's now our job to press on it. That's awful. There is no, yeah. there's not enough words in the English vocabulary to describe how terrible of an experience that is. That said, push on their chest for a while. Like it's like, yes, it's all horrible. It's all really sad. Now I need you to do the thing. Right. And listen, if you're at that point and you're the first person there and you're pushing on someone's chest, like the way that my, and I, I'm paraphrasing because they're, they're not here to speak for themselves is they feel now that they can get any kid back to life because they know it, they've done it. We have the data to prove it. So like 
now they feel like they want to be there. They want to be the ones on scene rather than, oh my God, it's a kid and how sad. And oh my God, like now they've seen the outcomes. We've had the reunions. We've seen the smiles. We've seen the families not get divorced anymore. And it really is like, it's really a mind. It's all a mind shift. This is completely 100% a mind shift. And I think that, you know, conversations like these, I, I hope will change your mind. But I think that just stick to the dispatch thing for a second. Everyone on this call, when you run a cardiac arrest, demand to listen to the audio, right? And I'll tell you why that's important. You know, we had a kid, a two-year-old kid who ended up having uh, long QT, okay? Um, two-year-old kid was visiting from out of town. Mom puts him on the, on, on the, she says on the potty. And as soon as he pushed to make, he made a Valsalva, he extended his QT interval. He had an RNT phenomenon. Now he's in fib. He's in cardiac arrest. Okay. And, you know, we end up, we end up getting there and right in the bathroom, literally like maybe right room, just right outside the bathroom door, we worked this kid within two minutes. We got a shockable rhythm, shocked this kid, we got Ross, like boom, amazing, right? So everything seemed to be done perfectly well, except that his outcome wasn't good because he herniated 36 hours later. When we listened to the audio, we heard a lot of screaming. We heard a call taker who didn't give one instruction on one chest compression. So this kid for essentially eight, nine, maybe 10 minutes, had zero chest compressions. Imagine if that kid would have had at least another couple of minutes. One chest compression. One, it's something, one. move something, sure. get, get the perfume. So here's why it's important if you're, on, if you're that person on the scene is because when they heard the audio, they said, you know what? This kid didn't have a chance. And now they start to understand, hey, wait a minute, I wanna hear that audio. And then dispatch, you, you, you're now holding hands with dispatch saying, we trust you, we believe in you. And here's why, talk to any dispatcher. They're experts at listening to the tone of the medic on the radio. So when the dispatcher says, you're being toned out to cardiac arrest, and then they get there and it was a seizure, guess what the medic says you know, on the radio? Not a cardiac arrest. Yeah, that, that wasn't a cardiac arrest. Right. And they kind of say it in that tone, like you would talk to your, you know, to your three-year-old. And so we have to, we had to undo that part too. So what did we do? We had our medics sit in dispatch mm -hmm. and, and listen to the call side by side. And then all of a sudden, and we start to link in dispatch and we have our cardiac arrest survivors who's in the, in the audience and who's coming up on stage along with the crew, the dispatcher. Right. So it's a good point. There, 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 there are a lot of little like low-hanging low fruit here that that are very, very important. And but none of them, by the way, and I, I hate to say it because I'm, you know, I work in a hospital. But not, none of these relate to in-hospital care because none of this matters unless you bring me a viable kid. Viable meaning a neurologically viable kid, because I'll bet you that I can get a pulse back on a rock, right? Bet and you. That's, and that's kind of the point, though, is that. This is pediatric patients tend to be a population that we have the chance to have a very good outcome with, right? We know that if, if compressions start early, and that's always been the case, even with the new data that's out, mm -hmm. you know, um, back, back when my father was in medic school in whatever, I think the eighties, that was their thing. I was like, you do CPR on kids. Um, you know, I think that 
as a, as a culture, we tend to hear cardiac arrest and we call can, kind of tend to roll, roll our eyes because mathematically, if you're going to a cardiac arrest, it's probably an old person. It's probably going to be a pronouncement and it's probably an easy chart. Um, and I think on the flip side, we all tend to kind of want to stray away from difficult charts as cardiac arrests uh, tend to be. Um, but as I said, this is, it's a population that we can actually change patient outcomes and, you know, demographics of the world, frankly, moving forward. Um, and it's just not something that we do. Um, I do want to ask, cause we're coming up on a hard out, but I want to get, um, I wanted to try and, uh, kind of invoke, uh, Dr. Slovis a little bit here. Give me your, uh, your top five, I guess, things to know about the 2020 pals update, whether they're good or bad, what you would or would not change. Uh, yeah. Good or bad is relative. It, it, like, I, I, I understand it, like they're, they're fine. But. Yeah, no. Well, listen, for, first, I'll, I'll start by saying that, you know, I give all the people who are on the on the guidelines uh, and, and working hard a lot of credit because, you know, they it is a lot of work, right? Absolutely. Um, not no small undertaking, right. not, a, not an easy task. Nothing's ever going to be perfect. Right. Like that's, people, that's not what we're trying to say. It's just as, as with as with all guidelines that come out, they're always guidelines and the the published data tends to be behind the actual data. So that's but if you've gotten if you've gone through pals in 2020, this little little grains of salt we'll call them. Yeah, <laughs> and heavy grains of salt. Right. So listen, and I, I will say to you that you know um, it, what I learned a long time ago is is that just because they're published in a journal and their guidelines, you have to look under the hood. So let's take a look under the hood here for the for the pals guidelines, and we'll we'll give you the top five. Number one, and maybe the most important one is. The change from 10 breaths per minute for kids in cardiac arrest to 20 to 30 breaths per minute. So it's a doubling and a tripling of the ventilation rate, which I think is deadly. And here's why. When you're overventilating somebody, you're not just kind of causing an increased pressure in the chest that's going to squeeze down the RV that's going to limit cardiac output. That's, that's, that's kind of the basics of, of why putting too much positive pressure is bad. But what's very important is that you're minimizing flow from the brain back into the heart. And if, you, if you're not draining the brain, then when you push on the chest, you're not perfusing the brain. And your perfusion pressure goes way down. Um, I should say that the actual pressure in the brain um, is going up because you're not letting the brain drain of blood. So that ventilation rate may increase your oxygenation, but it surely won't bring more kids back to life. And if you want to, you know, just 30 seconds into the article that they published this on, that they based it on, was an ICU study, 47 patients. It was observational in nature. 60% of those children had congenital heart disease. All of them were intubated. All of them had arterial lines. All of them had fluid, their fluids maximized. Okay. Is this any patient we've ever seen? No. And then what was their presenting rhythm? 74% of the cases had a presenting rhythm of bradycardia with poor perfusion. So, and all the kids in the study that had asystole PEA, every one of them died. So to take a study that, that was not our patient population and then to lean it over and lay it over EMS is wrong. And ILCOR, so the rest of the world, kind of the international guideline folks, did not move to 20 to 30. And so I did push on the AHA to say, Please, before you make that type of change, give us better data. So that's that's kind of the big one for me. 
Um, the, the second one, let's go to number two, is a symptomatic bradycardia algorithm, where for years, I was against it, where they have a cardiac arrest dose of epi for children who have bradycardia, who are symptomatic. So let me just kind of take 30 seconds to explain that. A child has a heart rate under 60, but they're altered. You're doing CPR on them, and but there's still a pulse, but it's it's not a fast pulse, and they want you to give a cardiac arrest dose, so 0.01 milligrams per kilogram of epi 1 in 10,000, full dose of cardiac arrest epi to a kid like that. A study comes out in 2019 by Holmberg where he has almost 7,000 patients, not 47, beautifully done study, and overwhelmingly they said giving cardiac arrest epi to kids with symptomatic bradycardia is deadly. Okay. Instead, we should be giving an epi drip or push presser epi, something like a, some, a softer form of epi. No, it's not not to give epi at all. The, the guidelines saw that article. It was, it was in resuscitation in, this, in 2019. And they said, not good enough. We're going to wait. They took a 47 patient observational study and made a drastic ventilation change. 7,000 Almost 7,000 patients for symptomatic bradycardia did not make the change. The data is still out on the uh, the 7,000. Data is still out, right. So uh, needless to say, I made that change in my protocols the day that, uh, or the year that protocol came out. So in 2019, we've been doing, uh, we've taken that out of our protocol. Um, the, the third big oopsie is the fluid management. In 2015, I called the guide, guidelines out because based on a study done in Africa on kids with malaria, they said, maybe you should consider giving fluids to kids in shock, uh, not in compensated shock, in, you know, decompensated shock. Consider giving fluids. Why? Because the study done in, you know, uh, by someone in Africa, actually, she was a very, very uh, good researcher, but it was in kids with malaria, which we don't see here, different physiology. These were kids with severe anemia, like, you know, hemoglobin of five. Um, and then these kids did not have any ventilators. They did not have an ICU. Does that sound like anything we do here in America? No, but instead they took that principle. So now in the 2020 guidelines, they said, we're now just now going to reconsider that recommendation we made. So you, you, you could see the, the problem when they make such a, when they make such a mistake, it takes them years. It's like the Titanic, right? It's, a, it's it was such a big ship. You can't navigate it so well. So that's the third, that's the third big one. Um, the, the fourth one, which is, you know, kind of less of an issue for me, but it, it's really like just the basic BLS airway stuff where they have the CE clamp. Well, the, the, the C on your fingers, if you're pushing on the submandibular soft tissue, you're closing off the airway. So we kind of make it a VE with a, where that, that, that V between your thumb and your, and your index finger are at the top of the bag so that you're not pushing underneath there. Um, and then I'm a big believer in the eye gel or in the superglottic airway, King, LT, whatever you want to use. Uh, so it's bag, 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 put an eye gel in, upgrade if you have to, to an endotracheal tube. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of a big fan of, of that superglottic. And then the fifth, number five, just to kind of round it up, is the blood. So in trauma, they say give component therapy meaning you have a separate bag for PRBCs, which is just the red blood cells, then platelets, and then fresh frozen plasma. There's no EMS system in the world that can carry component therapy. We, in Broward County, where you used to live, we now have whole blood. 
and we give it from cradle to grave. So if you have a trauma right now in Broward County, we'll get the helicopter in, thanks to Broward Sheriff's Office, a great agency, and they will drop the, the bird and we'll give you whole blood. Now, there's not enough data for the guidelines to have said that yet, but here we are in March 2021. I'll guarantee you in the next, hopefully in the next couple of years, but probably five years, <laughs> the guidelines will finally say, let's start giving whole blood. So uh, th- those are my top five. The rest of it, I think, is great. I don't want to, again, uh, people who know me know that I'm all about the patient. I'm not about an ego. And if the guidelines wants to come to me and say, hey, you're wrong, let's have a conversation. That is, there's so much that we talked about today. Um, everyone listening, please take some time to go back over it. There's a lot of information to unpack. A um, lot of things that we can do and change with pediatric arrest. Um, we'll put all of Dr. Antevi's information in the show notes. Um, so Dr. Antevi, thanks for coming back on the show. We appreciate it. No, no, guys, thanks so much. And uh, just so you know, that that uh, 90 minute webinar on the guidelines is not going to be um, open. Uh, we're going to you know, kind of blast it out. If anybody wants it, they can, I guess, contact you guys. We can give you the link as well. I really want to push on everybody. Don't take my word for it. Just like you guys do, go look at the papers, open the guidelines, sit with your medical director, and you're going to have to make some tough decisions, basically. But you got to do the work, understand the data. It's sitting there right in front of you. We've put it all in a nice webinar, but please don't just take what they're telling you um, as the gospel, because as you guys started off by saying, these are guidelines. They're not gospel. Yeah. No, I will absolutely link to that in the show notes. Okay. Um, so thanks again, doc. Awesome. Thank you guys.